This is an ABC podcast. Just a warning, in this episode, we will discuss how to talk to your children honestly about suicide. Remember, in a crisis, you can always call Lifeline 13 11 14. You do not get a choice. You are thrown well out into the middle of the ocean with no lifeboat and you have no option but to keep going. I remember being at the hospital and as they were breaking, well, trying to lead us down the garden path that Dino might not actually get through this, um, some of the nurses kept asking, you know, do you have other children? Do you have other children? And I would say, yeah, but... I need this child. He's my boy. You know, I, I, of course I do. In hindsight, I think what they were alluding to and what they were checking in with themselves is she's got others to get her through this. If there's one thing that can really derail a person or indeed a whole family, it's death. And it's especially tough when you as a parent are already grieving to then manage your children's reactions, their questions, their tears and their irrational fears. Or maybe what looks like a strange reaction, because when the worst thing imaginable happens, children don't always do what you expect them to do. They might just go on laughing and playing as though life is completely normal. I'm Maggie Dent, and in this episode of Parental As Anything, We're going to learn how to prepare your children for an inevitable part of life, which is death. Now, I've worked with a lot of grieving families over the years, from my time in palliative care, the funeral industry, working with survivors of suicide and to conducting over 200 funerals as a celebrant. What I know for sure is that whether it is the death of a beloved pet or finding out someone we love is dying or facing a sudden, unexpected death, loss is huge for everyone. It impacts minds, bodies, hearts and souls and it really hurts. If your children are still young, you could begin teaching your kids to process loss with a picture book. Benson the Boxer by Karen Ferry is a great one to start with. Karen is a loss, grief and trauma counsellor, so she works with families all the time in these really, really tough moments. Karen, when do kids start thinking about death and what do we say to them when they start asking those questions? Kids first understand the concept of death usually from what they hear friends talk about, grandma, grandpa might die, but really it's not so much about knowing what to say, it's really more about listening because they will have the questions that they want to have answered. Really, a child doesn't really understand about death till about nine years old and before then you just give them the information that they are able to take on board at that time. It's a little bit like sex education in a way. You answer (laughs) the questions that they bring forward without even having to elaborate. And it's never just one conversation. I think that's a really important thing. So what are some of the common mistakes that parents make when their kids start asking about death? Well, we use terminologies that are not understandable. We might say they are lost. We've lost granddad. 
lost, lost where? Even we use the word past, where have they passed to? And does that mean they're going to come back? So in my experience, the parents that haven't known what to say, they either say nothing or they don't know what to say, so they make up some terminologies to make themselves feel better. And instead of using the word they died, death, and all those correct terminologies, we avoid it because we think it's going to hurt too much. I think also the going to sleep one. I remember a little um, a four-year-old that was refusing to go to bed because when Nana went to sleep, she ended up in a box and got buried in the ground. So that is really, really important to use the real words. It's different to sleep because people often do say it's the same as sleeping, but we've got to remember that the, our body parts still work when we're sleeping. It's really saying the body has stopped altogether. There is no more breathing. There is no more going to the toilet. There is no more needing food. There is no more pain. So walk us through it. How do we say it to, say, younger children under five or six? Well, I would say to them, what do you understand about death? Or do you know what the word dead means? No. Well, dead is when you stop breathing, when your body is not working anymore, when we don't need to have food, when there is, as I said before, there's no more pain. And let the questions arise from that. Do you understand what we're talking about? We like to fill in all the gaps for children. We like to give them all the information, but really they will glean the information they need. They'll say, what does that mean? If they turn off and don't want to talk about it, it could actually mean just let it rest for a little while and come back to it at another time. So often that that means they come back with that question later, are we not going to see them anymore? That's right. But it might not come up at the first point and it's okay for it not to drop it on them at that point? It's okay. It's it's all about letting the child lead the conversation Um, because we have our own agendas as adults and we think we know how it should be told. But really, if they lead it, we'll answer the questions to the age um, appropriateness that they will have within themselves. Karen, I'm a terrible resilience educator because I really recommend families get a guinea pig or a pet that doesn't live very long, sort of around three or four, because I think it's a really good gentle experience of death rather than it being a grandparent or, or being somebody, a person they love. And as sad as that is, it's it's important for children to experience death. But unfortunately, even our very, very first um, concept of death and how our pet guinea pig, how that death was handled as an adult can determine how an adult will then deal with death. For example, if the, if the, if the um, parent goes, oh, just get over it. Come on, it's just a guinea pig. They haven't actually valued what that loss means to the child. So it really is identifying it and naming it and addressing it and acknowledging the death. Yes, you must feel very sad about your pet guinea pig dying to give the death value for from the child's perspective. I also think it's important to identify that pain in the heart at that point because that's when you know you're losing something you love. And I'm really passionate about the whole then we go into the funeral and then we bury it and we do all those things and we introduce them to the ritual of what happens after. Um, And I do remember a lady saying to me after a seminar, she came to another seminar several years later and said, oh, oh, we went home and did that and had a couple of guinea pigs that died. Now, if anything dies, they conduct the funeral for all the pets in the street. And I thought that was, that is exactly how they can do that when they've got a construct around expectation. um, And also they were soothing these other children. And I felt, wow. And I think when a child does experience death and others talk about it at school, they do get the concept, well, you got through that okay. And it brings a compassion to children to be able to share the experience as well. Now, a lot of kids, when they get that feeling of what death is, 
get frightened that, are you going to die, mummy? Are you going to die, daddy? And I know this can happen even without a death of a parent, which really accelerates that fear. So what do you respond to that? Fear is a very real part of children experiencing death. There are three things that children generally ask themselves, whether consciously or subconsciously. The first one is, did I cause the death? The second one, is it going to happen to me? And the third one, who is going to take care of me? So these three issues spell fear. And of and if we know about the brain, we know when that limbic system is activated and there's a fear response, our stomach starts to churn, our heart starts to beat fast, it doesn't feel good. And so the child then doesn't want to even talk about it because it feels too painful. It's not part of their normal talk. How do you explain to a child that someone is ill and now has a life-threatening illness, so they are going to die. How do we have that conversation? Not easily. No, thank you. And it's not meant to be easy, Karen. So it's going to make us all feel a little bit yuck. Yes, but really there's probably three things. Be focused, focused on the child, the child's responses. Make it fuss-free, which means simple language. Don't use big terminologies. They don't understand and it's going to just confuse them more. And be factual. Be honest and factual. The child needs to know that death is actually permanent, that it can't be changed. They need to know that it means that the body stops working and that also it actually happens to everybody eventually. When we are preparing a child for a loved one passing away, say it's grandma, say it's even dad or has cancer, these are tricky conversations. But if we're not honest and open, a child's trust in an adult wanes and lessens because they go, well, what can I believe? So even though those conversations are very, very difficult, the more we beat around the bush, as they say, the more we don't front it. And by again asking, what do you understand about death? From those answers, we can then fill in some of the gaps because they are going to notice if someone is sick and going to die, there will be body deterioration. Their physical appearance will probably change. They'll have mental deterioration. What does this mean? So we like to think, I don't want to tell the child to the very last minute, but actually not a good idea. Being prepared in advance means that a child can plan how to say goodbye. How would you like to say goodbye to grandma? What was grandma's favourite songs? Make cards for her. All of these little things help to process the concept of death and take the fear out of it to make it part of a child's experience rather than something we should shun and be be afraid of. I know this is really, really tough. But remember, you're the grown-up. It's tempting to want to run a mile from these conversations. But in the event of death... The other important thing is that the information needs to come from the child's key caregiver. Who is the safest person in your child's world? Is it you? Well, it should come from you. I'm a real believer that you gather the family together and you say something like, I have some really sad news, some bad news that I need to tell you right now. As well as, we need to recognise that every child has a different way of responding. And all of those are absolutely okay and completely normal. So it's really important that we don't shut that down or have unhelpful expectations around how our kids should grieve or for how long they should grieve. Karen Ferry has a name for it. There's a term called puddle jumping. Puddle jumping is when a child goes in and out of grief. They 
go away and have a cry, maybe go and watch a movie, want to play with their friends. And mum and dad are simply grieving 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And they might go, oh, the child's being so disrespectful. They just want to go and play with their friends. But in reality, their brain would not be able to cope with the trauma involved in, in recognising that someone's going to die. So the, the child needs to be given the opportunity to uniquely grieve in their own way. That depends on their age, their understanding, if they've experienced loss before. Are there any other disabilities surrounding the child? Is there a mental disability where they don't understand? So many areas that, that we need to recognise when we talk about grief and loss and death with children puddle jumping. I love that term. And sometimes well-meaning relations can make mistakes about kind of assuming you should be sadder or asking, are you sad when you actually aren't? And a child needs to be given permission to be happy with friends still and not make it. I know when a child gets back to school and I, I work with a lot of um, teachers in the grief and loss arena and often parents could say, well, Aren't you still sad? How can you enjoy school? How do you how come you want to go on that camp because daddy's just died? But in reality, that camp or that school project or that sports event means for those few moments the child their life is back to normal and we need as parents and caregivers, aunties and uncles, allow the child, give them permission to still be happy on occasions because death doesn't have to be mournful and morose forever. Now, I want to chat to someone who went through exactly this experience. When Maddie and Alex Cross's 18-month-old son, Dean, died suddenly from meningitis, they had to help their two older children through this incredible loss while also coming to terms with the death of a precious child. How did you do it? How did you find the strength inside you to keep being a mum to Josie and Boy during that incredibly hideous, tough time of your life? Firstly, you do not get a choice in these things. Um, so I often think um, of the mothers who don't have the other children, which forces you to just keep going and keep living and keep moving through. It was like some kind of atomic bomb with the mushroom cloud. And for a good, I would say at least 10 days, 14 days, I went into a feeling of feeling absolutely nothing. And it is a numbness and a an absolute, you have no ability to kind of feel anything. Um, in that phase, um, my younger sister came from Melbourne to be with me and she was my shadow for a good two weeks. And she was making decisions for me such as, do, do I wear socks with these shoes, I, you know, or mm. do, would you like a cup of tea? I don't know. I don't know what I want. I don't know what I need. And I can say that in hindsight at the time, you kind of think I'm, I'm okay, I'm, I'm going to survive this. And I almost was looking to everybody else to look after them because I thought everyone needs to be okay. So it is actually a protective mechanism of the brain. You cannot explain it. You actually have to experience it. Yep. But it is almost like nature's way of making sure you will survive this yep. because if it let you feel it, mm. it would possibly kill you. Yep. That yep. is how big that is. So it gives it to you in little bits. Yeah. And that explains these waves. You know, you yep. feel the waves and the, oh, there's a wave coming. I'm not going to be able to survive this. I um, I can't possibly breathe 
you know, and then the wave goes away and you're back to just looking around and wondering what, you know, you're in a real dreamland. And there's this amazing moment when you wake up in the morning before you are conscious of your situation where you're okay. And it's kind of momentary. um, But, you know, I longed for it because in that moment, it hadn't happened. Tell me about Dean's funeral and mm. um, how did you include the kids in that journey and, and what suggestions might you have for other families? In a very, very fortunate way for me, um, in I was able to be connected with you through our community. Um, we live in the same place. One of the things you spoke about um, to me was get Dino's photo up, put it smack bang in the middle of your family room and use that as a way for the kids to kind of interact with him. And it continues on. Still to this day, a huge photo of Dean, all of our family memories around it, and then we've got Dino's table. The kids interacted with Dino's table in a way that I had never thought would would be possible. Boyd would collect shells for him. Josie would put books up for him. They would write letters to him. They would do all these things just completely off their own back. That was Dino's table and continues to be. And it's now just a, a bit of a wild space. And that's good because it's evolving with our family. But the biggest part that was helpful around the funeral was um. I was petrified of death before Dean died. I hated going to funerals, anyone's funeral, I could cry. And then Dean died and uh, the petrified feeling is was there. And um, you mentioned to me that a good idea sometimes can be to have an open um, coffin um, because that helps to um, create connections in your brain that Dean is gone. So when the kids left the hospital, Dean was on life support and that was Alex and I took him off that after they had left. So the last time they saw him, uh, he was looked like he was breathing, he was warm and what have you. Uh, and so with your advice and with a very heavy heart, we decided we would do that. And holy shit, I've never been more afraid in my life of that <laughs> moment. But just before the funeral, the people turned up with Dean in his, we were calling it a goodbye box, um, with Dean in his goodbye box. And my sister was waiting out the front of the house so nobody would come in and interrupt us and we could get the 30 minutes of family time back. We put on his favourite TV show from ABC for Kids. Um, We had, you know, the dishwasher going in the background and we had all the things happening. His favourite jammies. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And they brought his coffin into my house, into our family room where we had spent 587 beautiful days together. And um, they opened it and it was just beautiful Dean. And I didn't know what I thought I was going to see, but it was just my perfect son looking perfect and being just him in his just beautiful state. And um, and the kids just opened it up, Dean, you know, Dean's here. And because Josie was four and Boyd was three at the time and, and Alex and I just looked at each other and just everybody, we just touched him and we kissed him and we, Boyd tried to put toys in the coffin and, you know, Josie read him a book and we sang Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And, and it was just, and then we, Boyd wanted to play with something else so Dean was there and the kids started to play together 
and he's there and we're there and he's dead and we're not and how what the hell's going on but far out it was a moment that is irreplaceable and can so easily be missed if you don't do it and then we went up to the funeral and I have never felt a sense of calm in myself like I had it was truly truly you know I walked in and I I felt I had been with him, you know. There was no sense of mystery around it. There was no fear of death. There was just me and my son and my family and we were going to say goodbye to Dean. And I am just so grateful that we got that opportunity because had we have not, I just not sure I would have felt that sense of calm. That is the memory that they can hold for a while. It was quite magical, wasn't it? Now tell me a little bit about the stars because it was his favourite song, wasn't it? Yeah, so Twinkle, Twinkle Little Star was just a song that we would always sing together. The stars have become his kind of what we refer to him as. At the time, the community that I live in was absolutely and truly phenomenal and all of the kids around the area drew stars and things and they... They covered the town hall for his um, funeral and everybody wrote messages on the stars. And um, every single night since, you know, we look at the stars and that's him. Yeah. It is also allowing other children to be part of the farewell and it gives brings hope, doesn't it? There's symbolism that brings hope. Absolutely, yeah. It was amazing. And um, there were kids coming up to me, you know, there's this general footpath in town and everyone rides their bikes along there and the kids would come up to me and give me a big hug and, you know, say sorry. And it was just amazing. It was a hard space for a lot of parents in town because everybody had to have really difficult big conversations with very young children and everybody was kind of just yeah. struggling with that. We continue to think about and talk about Dean very openly and that's been something we've done on purpose. So we have what we call in our family the Dino Circle and the Dino Circle is basically at dinner anyone can call a Dino Circle and then we all hold hands and we think about our favourite Dino memory. And quite often Boyd, you know, I, Dino had the chubbiest bum you've ever seen <laughs> and, you know, Josie will say, I remember when Dino <laughs> fell down the stairs and... You know, we all just do that and it's so magic because the kids call it all the time and we're like, oh, bloody Dino Circle, quick, everybody in. (laughs) It's just a part of what we do as our family now. So healthy, that ritual. Yeah. Yeah. And it just means we can talk about it and, you know, we can pull everybody in and we can hold hands and remember him. Yeah. Yeah. So essentially the, the thing that hurts us the most is the separation from someone we love. When we do those rituals, when we have the picture up that the kids can talk to, when other people are comfortable to talk and ask then the connection stays quite strong, Yep. right? And therefore grief is a different journey to those who push it away and let's not talk about it. Yep. And I, so we're re-educating a whole generation of... I agree with that and we openly talk about him all the time and everybody kind of mentions to me, oh, you speak about him so well and and I kind of think, well, my my love and my relationship yep. with him is still evolving and I believe it will till the day I die. Never ends. No. Hasn't Maddie done a wonderful job with her young family? And what a beautiful story. And it shows the power of open, honest communication, and I believe the power of the human spirit. So, 
What if you have teens? As you might imagine, or already know, things can get much trickier in adolescence. As the limbic brain grows, our teens start feeling things, especially big emotions, much more intensely for a time. Way more intensely than we do as adults. Karen Ferry's advice is handle with care. For teens, we need to be really gentle. Teens, I've discovered nowadays, are really being confronted by death and then even in the form of suicide. This is incredibly confronting to them and they don't handle it well. And that brain, that neurological development at that pre-teen, pre-pubescent, pubescent years is huge. And the fact that this is the time when neurons are prolific, really um, forming their emotional intelligence and their empathy and their compassion and their understanding of emotions and other people. So if a teenager is left to themselves, doesn't want to talk, withdraws, hides away, doesn't have anyone because there's not a good relationship family there, these children are going to experience grief at a whole new level. The families that handle grief better with teenagers particularly are those families that are very close. So families that have built already relationships, they're not ostracizing their their children. They will have the setup already for teens to go, hey, I don't feel well with this. They will want to withdraw more. And the more we demand they come out to the kitchen, the more we demand they come and do this and you must dress like this and you must show respect here, they will just turn off. That fear brain just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And and then they'll start finding resentment and resentment and and I, I'm so sick of this. And they won't even want to talk about it. They just turn off. I found a really helpful thing because I worked quite a lot around some sadly deaths in car accidents in where my boys were growing up. And what I found was helpful is for a teen to have their friend with them as much as possible, even staying over. And what that did was took some pressure off mum and dad, but also they don't often talk about stuff. They just hang around. Having a friend hanging around can be a comfort because they know they don't have to talk, right? But the teen gets they might not want to talk, but they kind of yeah, it's, it's incredibly deceptively powerful. I think we can make the mistake by thinking that the teenager should be there just with the family, which is what you're alluding yeah, to. Yeah. Their friends are their most powerful alibis and making them go to counselling is not a good idea, but suggesting some external help. There might be a coach, there might be a chaplain, there might be a school teacher, there might be somebody else in their life other than mum and dad to help them through that process of grief. Because as teenagers, what did mum and dad know? So can I just clarify that when you're saying making them going to counselling, more that you're forcing them to go to see someone rather than that being a possibility? That's right. Anyone that is forced to do something resents it, particularly a teenager. When we say we must, we have to, then they start putting the hackles up. But suggesting, would you like some external help? Um, There's somebody I know that could actually help you talk through this. Leaving the choice and the sense of control with them. As soon as we rob a child a sense of control and the options, they're going to rebel against us. I've always found it especially sad working with families when someone they love has died by suicide. So tell me, what do you advise families in talking to children 
if this has happened to a loved one? Be honest. Just have to be honest. And you don't have to give the details of the suicide. But we say things like they've injured their body and stopped, it's not now stopped working, or they've taken some pills and their, and their body doesn't work anymore. Children, again, will ask only what they can comprehend. But if we're not honest and we don't call it suicide, they will hear the term suicide. And then what does that mean? Karen, it, it's beautiful listening to you as you explore what grief is, is that it's actually a normal part of life. It's not a sign that we're weak, that we're not brave and courageous enough. And I think we really have to have more of these conversations, don't we, earlier with our children, but also in our schools, that are better ways of supporting our children that that are going through this process. Um, thank you so much. We could talk for another hour. Always. I recorded that wonderful, insightful conversation with Karen Ferry quite a while ago now. Sadly, in August 2020, Karen's own beautiful son died as a consequence of a work accident. He was just 34 and left behind his wife, his mum and dad and loved ones. Our heart goes out to Karen and her family and we want to dedicate this very special episode to his memory. Talking to children, especially small children, about death can feel really tough. No one wants to shatter their joyful innocence and to fill them with fear that they might lose you or someone else who's really special. But trust me, by starting the conversation early and by answering their questions in age-appropriate ways, and yes, By using the words dead and dying, you are giving them the basic tools that they will inevitably need when they lose their first loved one. Now, here are some suggestions that may help you and your family. Consider getting a pet with a short lifespan. Oh, look, I know it sounds a bit tough, but it really can help educate them, especially about the heartache that they will feel. Hey, don't forget the funeral. Next one is, people used to keep kids away from funerals and thankfully that's changing. So when children are able to come and even be a part of a funeral of someone who is special to them, they see it's a normal process following a death and they also get to share in the celebration of a special life, not just the farewell of that life. And seriously, there's nothing like a burp or a fart in the middle of a ceremony to make it really real and special. Remember, it's about life. And my last big suggestion is every single person grieves differently. Often men grieve differently to women, boys to girls, older people to younger people. So just remember, everyone is doing it in their own way. And we need to be okay that their way is okay and be really careful not to tell them how they should grieve. Now, if you want more resources on the topic, season four of The Pineapple Project is all about death, how to talk about it, how to cope with it, and how to prepare for it. You can find season four of The Pineapple Project in exactly the same place you found me, on your ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Next time on Parental as Anything, getting kids to do chores. 
they learn a work ethic. They learn, I'm expected to contribute. I should help. And um, when work needs to be done, I can roll up my sleeves and do it. That then leads to agency and self-efficacy, the sense that I am capable, I am competent. It actually leads to skill building. I can do this. I know how. I can get better and better at it. If getting your kids to do their chores has become such a hassle that you have stopped asking, you need to listen. I'll show you why it's really good for children to do chores and I'll help you stay on track and even make it fun so that your kids' chores don't become your chores. That's next on Parental As Anything with me, Maggie Dent. 